Welcome to another episode of the AlbumReview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. My guest for episode 59 is Rob Cassis. Rob hosts a weekly podcast called 1001 Album Complaints. On this whimsical podcast, Rob partners with friends and fellow musicians as they discuss their opinions on each album from the 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die list. In addition to the deep discussion, Rob and his co-creators throw in some humor, which makes his podcast very entertaining to listen to. Today, Rob and I are going to review ACDC's first live album, If You Want Blood, You've Got It, from 1978. So full disclosure, I had never heard of this album until Rob brought it to my attention a few months ago. And boy, did it have an impact on me. Mr. Dubeck. Dale and I were just calling me Mr. Dobek. Sorry. Okay, Mom, Dobek. We think it would be very prudent. Can we turn our beds into bunk beds? Yes. Why are you guys so sweaty? All right, we've already figured out how to do this. The beds match up perfectly. And here's the thing. It'll give us so much extra space in our room to do activities. Please say yes. You don't need permission from us to build bunk beds. You're adults. You can do what you want. So... I'm not making myself clear. I don't give a f- So in case you're wondering, yes, you can build bunk beds while you listen to this episode, but remember to play If You Want Blood, You've Got It on your sound system while you build. Enjoy. So I wanted to dive in and just talk a little bit about you for a, uh, a couple of minutes, as we had discussed in a previous conversation. I'm really interested for a few minutes just to hear a little bit about how your podcast is going. So you host a weekly, uh, roughly weekly podcast, if I'm correct, called 1001 Album Complaints. Yes. Where you get together with your friends and fellow musicians to talk about really all sorts of stories behind classic records. And part of this I'm taking from your bio, I think, but you guys throw in some, some humor, which I think makes the podcast really entertaining, if you ask me. Not to mention just learning more about new music, um, but also listening to reviews of albums that I already know and hearing a different perspective or a different take on it. So it is somewhat similar or fairly similar to what I do, we do here at albumreview.net. But you also have been, I think you mentioned you've also been writing, recording, and performing music for over 15 years. Is that, is that right? 
That's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah got, we, you know, got a lot of irons on the fire, but like you good. mentioned, yeah, it's 1001 album complaints is a weekly show where a group of old friends who are also all musicians would play in a bunch of different bands and configurations together over the years, get together and dissect, review, and talk about the making of these classic records from the 1001 albums you must hear before you die list. And so we take a fairly random approach to that list. It covers from the fifties on through the modern era with, with some of the revisions that have been published. And we listen for a week, we do deep listens. We listen on headphones and we research it and tell the story. And, you know, you mentioned the humor part. This really grew out of world buddies. We've been talking about music over beers forever. Right. And what we like to do, even with stuff we love, we're big fans of music, of course, and we make our own music, as you mentioned, but some, we like to poke fun at some of the things that happen in the studio or on mm. records or some of the decisions that people right. make I love that. lyrically or otherwise. And it's all meant in a positive spirit. We have the utmost respect for anybody who puts their creative part out there on the line. We know it's really challenging. Of course, I know it's super challenging to make something good in an artistic context. So you live in Northern California now, I think you mentioned, but you yes. regularly get together with your friends that you grew up with in Delaware, or you do at least virtually and do Correct. the 1001 Album Complaints podcast. Now, last I checked, you guys are well over a hundred episodes, right? Yeah. I think we just published 115. We're, we're right around that number. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the podcast, obviously, since I, uh, manage and created one as well. What, what was your experience like getting your, your podcast started? Like walk me, if you don't mind, walk me through the steps sure. you took to, to, to launch it. So it came out of the pandemic. I'm sure like a lot of other right. artistic projects or even podcasts where we were wanting to talk more with friends or a little isolated. And it came from that space of wanting to have an excuse to continually listen to new music and to talk about it with this group of friends that has been talking about music for so long. And in terms of the development of the concept, I think my co-host Tom is the one that came up with the concept. Okay. We talked it through a little, a little bit again, cause this is just stuff we would do over text or at the bar or right. just laugh about songs that were on the jukebox and right. Tom and I, Tom and I are very close. So we have our friend group. We all grew up in Delaware, as you mentioned, and then all kind of spread out throughout the country. At one point, a bunch of us were based in San Francisco. Then we were in a band together called The Chop. Great time in our lives. And since then, most people have rescattered to the winds. Uh, but Tom and I still live in Northern California and still play music together. But the point of the story is, yeah, we got kind of got the concept down. And one of the things, I liked the concept right away because I thought it was durable. I, too. I could I, I could see how we could continue it week over week. Yep. And I was, that was really important to me. In terms of the development of a podcast concept, I wanted something that could last for a hundred or more episodes, which sounds a little ambitious when you're starting something, but I think that's an important feature. It has to be scalable to use a tech world kind of term. Love it. Yeah, I know. We use that word all the time. I agree. And that's what I think about, you know, it's like the amount of albums I can talk about are, are endless. Um, sure. It's not just my catalog that's in my head or staring at me right now across the room but new albums as well. New meaning new that have been released recently or just new to me, like this one we're gonna talk today. Now, 
like some podcasts, they, they're attached to a website. Do you guys have a, uh, a website for, for your podcast as well? I don't have a specific web presence. We use a series of music websites. So really what we're trying to do is be this musical creative collective. The collective is called the Chop Unlimited, sort of after our, our first love band from our twenties that we all cared a lot about and we toured the country in a 16 passenger van and nice. less on fours and things like that. Oh, and the idea is that the collective publishes print vinyl records and sell them. We play shows different bands around the country because now the friends are, are scattered and they're doing different school projects in different places. And now it's a podcast production house as well. So to answer your question, the main web presence is really sitting on Instagram and over on Bandcamp where those individual bands are. Cool. Cool. And I think you can you can get the, the podcast on all major platforms as well, right? Like Apple, Absolutely. And, and uh, Spotify, et cetera, Amazon, you name it. Um, Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, what, what, um, I think you mentioned to me last time, Rob, that you, you and your friends, your co-hosts, you kind of split the, the editing work or the sort of creation of each episode. Like one guy does one episode each week, one different person does. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, more or less. We, we take a division of labor approach. And again, this comes from my day job background of being a product manager, an orchestrator, if you will, yeah. someone who has to make roadmaps and figure out how things, how the work is going to be delegated because I knew that this would be a challenge. So we do have, because we're dropping in musical clips all the time, there's some editing work that has to go in to the show. I think sometimes the editing also makes the, the commentary a little tighter and, and better. Totally. And, and so, yeah, we, we divide the labor. So each week we take turns on who's kind of leading the discussion. So that was a great reason and a great way to use multiple people who wanted to do this as we rotate who actually does the majority of the research. You know, they might read a memoir by the band or watch a documentary or some combination of both plus internet research and everyone else's role is simply to listen to the record, let's say eight to 10 times. And we kind of narrow it down from there in terms of the song we're actually going to talk about. We, but those other people are really just there to comment. They can do their own research as well. But one right. person's kind of in charge of leading the discussion. And then, yeah, it's same, same stuff with post-production and social media. We try to rotate or divvy it up as best we can. So when you're sort of, quote, for lack of a better word, running an episode, like, do you usually go back in and do the editing work for it? Or do you have, do you guys have like a, a designated person in the corner that'll take everything and chop it up and put it in a nice little format? We trade that work. I would say that. Probably I've done the majority of that work through our time. I kind of pioneered how we should edit an EQ. You know, that's the technical mastering of the episode and right. balancing and things like that. Through trial and error, I had to learn. I had experience oh, yeah. with home yeah. recording and things like that to a certain, but it was a journey and you can hear that in the episodes. In fact, I've actually recently gone back and remastered the Some first the 10. Yeah. yeah, the first 10, just at the very least on a loudness level, because I, we didn't understand the importance of, of that last mastering step in the beginning. Right. And then once we got a process down, we now started trading it around much more readily. We're oftentimes the person who leads the discussion ultimately is responsible for the edit because think about it at that point, the next person takes over the harder task of research for the next episode. Right, right. What sort of, just out of curiosity, what sort of tools do you guys use? Like for instance, like when you, I use a tool that somebody 
shared with me about three years ago called Podomatic to actually host my site uh, or my podcast, but then it shoots it out, as you can imagine, to your, you know, your, your Spotify, your Apple, your Google, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's, there's other platforms like Anchor. The list goes on and on and on. What kind of platform do you guys typically use to sort of host it? The platform we're using is called Captivate. Okay. Awesome. Yep. My Captivate. Yep. I've heard and it. And that's, sure. yeah, we sort of looked around at the beginning, frankly, not knowing too, too much and, and picked that one, I think based on price and a few other features and it gives you some analytics. I'll be honest. I don't think it's amazing, but it's done a good job for us and it has the features we want. And then in terms of editing, because we all have a lot of experience doing home recording, I was pretty familiar with editing sound in a digital audio workspace, a DAW, and I use one called Reaper, which I love. Nice. nice. I don't think I know that one. That's interesting. It's an, it's an open source version of sort of logic. So cool. they distribute it for free. You can use a trial version for free or you can pay them. In terms of marketing, like what kind of, if any, because I know this is something that I've been looking to, and I have in the past, but they've been temporary mostly. I've hired um, folks to sort of help with digital marketing and sort of get the word out there on social media. Do you guys do that or do you just let it sort of speak for, your, for itself? Like what kind of marketing do you guys do for the podcast? Well, to be honest, we a good year not marketing it at all. We're not thinking too hard about it. And that was our period in our minds of tightening up the content, getting sure. good at our craft and things like that. And then we got to a certain, and it grew a bit in that time, of course. And then we got to a certain confidence plan and I decided to focus on social media. So there, there are a few strategies in play is what I want to say. One is the social media strategy. Yep. Figuring out, flipping the show, of course, and posting it to social media, posting other musically relevant things, intermixing that, some of the, like, posts that would be about our bands, kind of trying to um, direct all that traffic together to a certain extent. We've recently gotten into kind of some new shareable content stories about, you know, musical anecdotes from the past, which are quite well. Another strategy is phenomenal podcasts like yours to find other like-minded musical podcast listeners yeah. Yeah. And, and let them know about our show. You know, it's a, it's a narrow market. And so if you're already listening to a podcast about music, pretty good chance, you know, like what we're doing as well, it's not super easy to attribute who's coming from those portals or not, but totally. uh, you know, it makes sense internally, intuitively. And, um, a third strategy, we have dabbled a little bit in ads, but not, not for too long. I've used ads in other contexts, uh, well, both of my job and for music promotion. And so I consider myself kind of okay at promoting music online, using online advertising podcasts, a little bit of a new arena for me. Sure. So we dabbled it in, it went kind of okay, but ultimately we decided that we'd rather continue to grow organically and slowly and focus on these other strategies. Yeah. A lot of times it's just about creating content, right? Like that's sort of what I've learned. Um, and, and I get in these phases where I'm just pumping out content and then I'll maybe slow down for a couple of weeks and just focus on the marketing to just sort of get the word out there. Um, yeah. And I think both are, both are helpful. I'm just always eager to ask people, you know, their, their approach to marketing. Cause I find that it's, you know, I have a sales background and it's, you know, it's, it's more from a recruiting standpoint, but when I started recruiting 20 plus years ago, 
you know, I, I had to build a book of business from scratch and the sure. internet really wasn't, it was a thing, but it wasn't really like what we lived off of. It was like, oh, I could go to the library. I could use the internet. So I value that experience now because it really kind of taught me how to, how to hunt. Um, sure. And so I've tried to apply some of those skills to, to getting the podcast out there. Um, but at the same time, I realized too, that sometimes just sitting back a little bit, focusing on the content, creating the content. So that's going to just like work itself, right? You, you may, hit, yes. you know, I don't know about you, man, but I've, I've found in some cases I do a review of an album that I think there's only five people on the planet that have ever heard it. Mm-hmm. And then I, all of a sudden that review untaps a, like a, like a fan group that's been hiding under a rock for 20 years and they all come out of the woodwork and they're like, this album, I didn't think anybody else loved this album. Whereas yeah. no knock on say like Guns N' Roses, but Appetite for Destruction, that's been done 8 billion times. Sure. So those to me, I've, I thought when I first launched my podcast, oh, these will get more, you know, more eyeballs or ears on. And quite frankly, it's really been more of the rare sort of less heard or less known, less reputable albums from a popularity standpoint that have really gotten more of the the listens or the the downloads. I didn't know if you guys had the similar experience or if you even really even pay attention to that stuff. We do a little bit. I wouldn't say it's it's top of mind, but just to go back to what you said initially, I mean, of course, the most important thing, and we knew this from the beginning and we still know it, is to make the content good. That I see this as a mountain climbing, yeah, just like in business. And you, you might only go an inch at a time. Goal is to slowly but steadily move forward up the mountain in inches and not lose ground coming back. So content first, absolutely. It has to be good. We worked really hard to just clean up a lot of the stuff. We had a good concept we, and we have good rapport because we know each other. And we're pretty baseline knowledgeable about music as I think the podcast shows. Maybe we're even pretty relatively witty with each other. But what we had to add to that and learn was the research aspect, how to truly tell a story from the research and not just spout facts, how to segmentize parts of the podcast to make them punchier and funnier. I think listen, as a podcast listener myself, I like recurring segments, you know? Yeah, so, I agree. And we haven't even talked about the sound quality that I alluded to earlier. We were starting out, we're taking Zoom recordings. Just kind of silly when you think about it, given that we're all musicians, good microphones, but quickly moved over to good microphones and local audio and better EQ and better mastery, things like that. So content is king for sure. You're doing what you're doing. Second point I want to make is you have to, you have to trust your instincts to a certain extent. I don't, I'm not a marketer by trade, by any means, but I think there's a fine line of over-optimizing for an audience you don't really want and kind of losing yourself artistically in the process. I'm just saying that that exists somewhere. I'm not suggesting my podcast is art exactly. Yeah, you have to be, but you have to be a little bit wary. Is is my point. And so you got to use your internal compass. And this is the point of view of the show. This is what we're good at. Let's continue to double down on what we're good at. And I would say with a show like ours and our concept, we can do this intuitively. But what we've learned is that we invite a fair amount of negative energy back too. You know, because we're taking the harder position, because we're poking fun, 
we're not, we're not just praising the classics and yep. sort of knew that going in. And we, we like that. I've always liked artistically. I like things that are polarizing. Yeah. I'd rather go see a band and hate them and feel neutral about them. neutral <laughs> is the worst feeling. <laughs> so, that, so there's that aspect. But then to, to touch on your last point about the popularity of albums, I agree. There's these fans out there for lesser known records yeah, and they tend to be more activated and engaged. I would agree. Yeah. So we see a, a, a blip there as well. And I think it has something to do. This is the product manager in me with just the listener experience, how they're going to even get to you. I type in gang of four into Spotify and my podcast maybe can be one of the top things that show about gang of four, the band yes. next to maybe their records because there's not as much content about that band. So that is, I think, a factor here that, that must be noted. But that said, I think it's entry point to our podcast. If someone was listening for the first time, yeah, it makes sense to click on an episode from a record that you already, you're already relatively familiar with. So you can kind of go along with us. I like to think that over time, we've gotten people who, a small but loyal core of fans who actually listen to the records in real time with us which is what we're doing, right? And then tune in to hear, hear our takes. All good points, man. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think um, it really is about the content, but I think it is, I mean, anything that you create is art. And what I really like about your podcast is, you know, you're, you're putting personal stories into it as well, as opposed to just spitting out factual information. I can't remember if I shared this story with you, but like growing up, I grew up in the Boston area and I used to read when I couldn't go to a concert. And when I was a little kid, I mean, my parents wouldn't let me go to everything. I have to get permission and then we'd have to find an adult to go with us. And, you know, and I was going to shows when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And, um, and I can remember if I couldn't go to a show, I'd read the review in either the Boston Globe or it was usually in like the art section of the Boston Globe. And it was just this, this collection of words that I could never really understand. It looked like it was written by somebody who just wanted to show up that they had an English degree from sure. you know, Princeton or something like that. And, um, and it was, you know, very objective, which I think maybe that's what they were hired for. But what I like about your podcast and what I try to emulate in mine as well is really putting that personal touch into it as well. Um, here's, here's why I like it. And here's what it did for me so that maybe someone can hear it and not get the exact same memory from that emotion, but they're like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, although I'm not a big fan of XYZ band, I really like ABC band, and I got that feeling when I first heard their first album. And um, I mean, I've literally had moments, and it sounds super cheesy, but I literally had moments where I heard music that made me pull my car over. And when I first rode with a buddy of mine in college who did the same thing, I was like, I found my people, you know, he was like, oh my <laughs> totally. God, I gotta, we were driving through Atlanta. He was like, I have to pull the car over. This song is incredible. And I think the guys in the back were rolling their eyes uh, and he and I were like, you know, yeah. So um, I agree. And that's really what I like about it. So, um, okay. Before we get to the album review, I'm always curious to ask this one, you know, answer it if you, if you'd like, have you guys sure. taken any steps to monetize the podcast at all? We're just in the process of strategizing that step right yeah. now. We shied away from it purposely for a time. We sure. wanted to achieve certain milestones. Of course. And now it's just coming on 
that we're we're kind of there. So that it, that truly is our next step. And you know, you allude to this in some of your comments, but I think this whole podcast world is still kind of the wild west. I know there are a, heck of a lot of podcasts out there, but there is not a lot of straight line linear information about how to do X, Y, and Z. So it's about figuring these things out, whether it's marketing or creating the content in the first place or choosing podcast host. None of this is so easy to go get straightforward information about. There's a lot, there's opinions galore. Totally. Anyway, my, my, my point is it takes a certain uh, mental bandwidth and commitment to even uh, attempt to figure out this puzzle called monetization. And so we're just starting to turn our attention to that. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's definitely a unique road and I've got a ton of ideas and I've had some experience with it and pulled some cords here or there, but it definitely is, there's no specific recipe. I don't think there's sure. a secret formula, uh, at least not yet. Right. So, um, all right, let's get on to the album review. This is actually an album that Rob, you recommended that I'd never heard before. And I'm extremely happy to review it. I, I don't always review albums that I grew up with or fell in love with at an early age. I enjoy the experience of, you know, burrowing myself into a different album and sharing my thoughts. So today we're going to talk about ACDC's first live album, If You Want Blood, You Got It, which the band released in 1978. So I can, Rob, I can first remember hearing ACDC's music when I was 10 or 11 years old. It was the Stephen King horror movie, Maximum Overdrive. I'm, I, okay. I, I'm sure. guessing you are as well, but I'm a big movie buff, especially horror movie buff. And as a kid, we would always, um, I'd always gravitate towards some of my friends' houses whose parents were a little bit more laid back. Mine were not so much. I was not, uh, I was forbidden to watch R-rated movies um, oh, until I, until I got to, you know, maybe high school. Um, so at an early age, I had some friends. And so we went over one night, we watched Maximum Overdrive and Maximum Overdrive, if any out there who are listening to this have, have heard of it, or even if you haven't, it was a horribly produced, cheesy 80s horror movie. No offense, Stephen King. The story's great, but I, I feel like it's got a superior soundtrack. And the, the film it, it essentially tells a story about machines, vehicles, trucks, cars, et cetera, all machines coming to life and killing people. <laughs> so, uh -huh. sure. Super cheesy, but every, I don't know if you've seen it, Rob, but every song. The, okay. So you probably already know, but every song in the score was from ACDC. And the name of the soundtrack was Who Made Who, which uh, was the very first ACDC that I had really ever heard. So my introduction to ACDC was with lead singer Brian Johnson, who, as many may know, replaced former lead singer Bon Scott in 1980 after Scott died of alcohol poisoning. Prior to his death, the, the band had already begun working on their seventh studio album, Back in Black. And Rob, you probably already know the story, but I didn't know the details of it. But apparently one night, Bon was drinking heavily with his friend Alistair Kinnear, hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and later that night, the two jumped into a car and drove back to Kinnear's home in the London area. And when they arrived, Kinnear couldn't wake Bon up. Um, so after several tries, he just left Bon in the back seat of his car, thinking, yeah, he'll sober up. Well, that was... A gigantic mistake. The next morning, Alistair went out to his car and found Bon unresponsive, not breathing. He took Bon to the nearest hospital where he was pronounced dead. And essentially he had died by choking on his own vomit. 
So minus the car ride, this is eerily strange and, and similar to the way Jimi Hendrix died 10 years earlier in September of 1970. So um, I wanted to bring this up because I feel like there was, at least for me in the 80s and into the 90s, there was a, like for instance with Van Halen, there was a camp at, at, at my school. You were either a David Lee Roth Van Halen fan or you were either a Sammy Hagar Van Halen fan. And, you know, you had your Van Hagar and then you had your Van Halen. And I feel sure. like for a while, at least at my school, there was the same kind of argument per se with, um, with ACDC. And so yeah, Bond was ACDC's singer during the performance and recording of this live album. But I'd become mesmerized by Brian Johnson's vocal range when I first heard him. And later in 1980, Brian would join the band and actually complete the recording of Back in Black. So I didn't even realize that they had already started the recording of Back in Black with Bon Scott. Um, and then they ended up sort of re-recording what had already been recorded with, um, with Brian. So I admit, I had trouble getting into Bon Scott when I first heard his voice, Rob. I think it was, I was driving through Boston and it was the song Big Balls, which I think was off their first album. It was on the radio and I was probably eight or nine years old. And I remember hearing the lyrics, I've got big balls and they're such big balls. And so as like a nine-year-old kid, I was giggling. And I think like any kid would, I was desperate to hear what many considered bad words when you were a kid. So that's what sure. made me laugh about it. But um, similar to kind of what you guys do in your podcast, I made a joke. Of it, and so I sort of wrote Bon off. And so I think, although I have a lot of respect for him now, this album really... It it really helped me appreciate him more, um, yeah. and so despite the the genius that is, if you want blood, you got it. I guess did you ever get into that? Like I prefer Bon Scott over Brian yeah. Jones. You did, I know. Yeah, of course, I know what you're talking about. Let me tell you a little about my history of coming to this music, the UTDC. I did not grow up with this stuff. I grew up with mostly my parents' music which was kind of Beatles, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, maybe into Pink Floyd. And I did really love that classic rock sound, but I didn't get into much hard rock for quite a while. I want to say until well into my 20s when I was okay. kind of out on my own after college. Nice. And you know, I'd listened to a lot of other stuff from the 70s. But for whatever reason, I'm sure I had heard ACDC, particularly the stuff off Back in Black, but other major hits like TNT, I'm sure. But I nice. just kind of glossed over them. For whatever reason, I think where I first started getting into this style of music, which was the harder edge of the 70s, whether ACDC or Judas Priest or maybe Iron Maiden to a lesser extent for me anyway, was I remember going to see a cover band in Francisco in the mid 2000s called ACDC, which I think I still toured to this day. It's an all-female yeah cover band of Bon Scott era ACDC. And oh, this was real. I think this concept of the gender reverse band is pretty common now. Yeah. There's a, there's a Zepparella. There's a bunch of them out there. Yep. Yep. And, but, I, but this was real early in the days of hearing about such, but I was just kind of attracted to the concept of like, oh, that's a fun, that's a funny concept. I was gigging in a band and at the time they were playing at a local club, bigger club, whatever. I went and they rocked. And I even, I think it might've been the first time I really became 
clear to me that Bon Scott was, that that was a, a line in sand that people draw. So then I just started kind of paying a little more attention to the distinction between those two eras. My take is that Bon Scott, I'm definitely on the Bon Scott side of the equation. Let me say that. Cool. Uh, they're both, they're both great. No doubt about it. Brian Johnson has an amazing voice, a great range. He's more operatic, right? I, Bon Scott is kind of more devilish and sexual and creepy, which is just, I, to me, it fits really well with this music. And I would say that some of these early ACDC tunes do happen to be some of my favorites, like TNT yeah. or Dirty Deeds or It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll, which is really yeah. one of my favorite all-time tunes. It's the first song on their first record. And uh, it makes, I have this playlist that I keep of songs about being in a band. And I just, I love all songs where they talk explicitly about what it's like to be in a touring band. And that's, that's a particularly great one. So um, anyway, but if you want blood, actually, this is the only live recording or the only live release with Bon Scott as the lead singer. Yeah. Uh, we should point out, unfortunately, he died tragically, as you mentioned. And so I didn't get to this until even much later than that. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't really in a record buying mode at the time, or maybe I would buy vinyl. I think I have a copy of Dirty Deeds as well as this one over on the shelf. But it's, you know, I was in my twenties. I didn't have a lot of money. Like I wasn't like purchasing a lot of music. So I just kind of tuned in slightly more. But then at some point in the Spotify era, I said, you know what? I'm really curious, which of these bands from days of yore were actually the best live bands? Because I've always admired the Beatles, of course, one of the best bands of all time, if not the best. But they're not really a live band, right? Okay. So honestly, I was curious. I haven't really dug into the Zeppelin live stuff or, I don't know, the Rolling Stones have a couple live records. You know, these are bands where I, I love the studio recordings of these bands. I kind of went on this little mission to try to figure out what was the best live recording of that era. And that was where I first came upon If You Want Blood this ACDC live record. And it knocks my socks off. Right, I, right. I feel like if you don't feel something while you're listening to this, you might be dead. I think you're right, man. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to admit this when you, when you first mentioned it, I think it was in an email. I was like, mm, uh, you know, and then I thought, okay, Greg, have an open mind. And I thought, oh, let, me, let me check it out. So just with your recommendation there, um, you know, I quickly Googled it and then read a little bit about it. And then I was like, all right, screw this. I'm just going to listen to it. And it was about 20 seconds into riffraff when I emailed you back. And I was like, let's do it if you want blood. So, I mean, you know, it's funny, you bring up the live albums and this really, um, I've done a couple of reviews of the live albums and it's funny, you actually, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Zepparella, which I think is bigger on the, the West, well, more well-known uh, to a lot of rock fans on the, the West Coast. Uh, they haven't done as many gigs here on the East. Um, but um, uh, Clementine Moss, the drummer from Zeppirella, is actually a recent guest on the podcast. Oh, nice. And yeah, and he's great. They're great. Uh, I'm talking to their bass player coming up again, uh, coming up here soon as well. Um, they're a great live act. Um, and... So it, this made me, little tangent there, but this made me, back to live albums, it really made me think about what some of my favorite live albums are and then what are known or thought of as some of the best. And so Oops. I randomly, and some people hate to rank things or list things. I didn't necessarily rank these in order, but 
I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit here for 20 minutes and I'm going to think about what some of my favorite ones are. And then I looked up what are considered some of the greatest live albums. Of course, if you want blood came up and many people listening right now might wonder, well, well, why? Well, first of all, and Rob can probably add way more to this than I can, but first of all, just listen to it, number one. But number two, we're going to go into a lot of detail as to why, right? Because I don't want to just say, part of this is that Rob and I give our opinions, but I, I think there's also some validation and some backup um, data to to support that, right? So um, I yes. made a list, Rob, and some of them are a little cliche, but I, I think they still stand the test of time. I didn't want to make it. Lay it on me. So... Um, Fillmore East, Almond Brothers. That's sure. been one of my favorites. MTV Unplugged, Nirvana. Yeah. Um, Band of Gypsies, Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Um, Live at the Apollo, James Brown. Both of those are so uh, good. Yes. Stop Making Sense, Talking Heads. Now you're speaking my language, Greg. That's my kind of my favorite. <laughs> Frampton Comes Alive, which I think for a while, for Decades was the highest selling live album. It'll blow your mind. I've never listened to it. Never listened to it. Um, do you feel like we do is a track that if anyone wants to just go quickly out, there's some other ones on there that are a little cheesy, a little goofy, but no offense, Peter Frampton. I think you're amazing, but that yeah. one's a good one. Um, uh, this one, I, I'm not a big Kiss fan, but I have to admit that Kiss Alive is considered arguably, you know, one of the, the best, uh, best live albums that we, Rob, so, we could dive into this a little bit later, but sure. quickly, quickly, my take on Kiss, and we don't have to go on too much of a tangent. I never really got hooked on Kiss, but every band that I ever grew up loving worshipped Kiss. And so it made me pay attention, basically. So that's kind of why I put them on the list. And then the last one that I'll put on here, which might make a couple of people go, but I'll stand by it. Um, when I was in college, was it college? Yeah, when I was in college, I picked up Live at Red Rocks by the Dave Matthews Band, and sure. I was floored. And when I go back and listen to that now, I still think it's one of the best live albums ever made. So those are my those are some of my numbers, and I guess mine is Kiss Alive, which um, I never really loved Kiss, but I I do agree it it was a groundbreaking live album let's talk about what makes a good live album because this is this is part of what i was trying to think of when i was on that little journey and of course this week again to talk here about if you want blood for me what's important and i figured this out pretty early on from my concert going myself as a, as a listener an audience member is i don't just want to hear the songs be fully reproduced 100 i want you to save something for me as the live audience and elevate the material. And that frankly can be very hard to do. And sometimes the people who are really, really good in the studio, looking at you, Led Zeppelin, or even the Rolling Stones, or the, or the Beatles, you, you've already set the bar too high, right? To actually exceed what's going on on the stage, or sorry, exceed what's going on on the record like when you come to the stage, unless you really completely reinvent the thing. Also, we're talking about a live record, not a live performance. So right. I'm not going to get the benefit of Kiss's theatrics 
which I'm sure are awesome. I'm not a Kiss fan. We recently covered Kiss on the podcast. So my thoughts are there if you want to go look for them. Definitely. But I get why they're exciting to watch flames and costumes. I get it. That's cool. I like the theatrical side of, of rock music and live music a lot, but then you can't hear that on the record, right? So you just have to set that aside a little bit. And so I think the material has to be elevated. One thing that if you want blood is I think very helps it very much. This is an underrated concept, I believe, is there's no hits. There's no huge hits from ACDC on this record to distract you. There's no TNT. Yeah. There's no dirt deeds. There's no, well, I've said later, much bigger hits. There's no, um, Oh, let's, let's say big hit. There are other big hit from the Bon Scott era and hell in it. Uh, hell's bells. Hell's There's no bell. hell's bells. Hell's bells was Brian Johnson. No, uh, highway to hell, oh, highway to hell. Highway Sorry. to hell. Yep. You're right. Good call. There was not no highway to hell on there. Probably the most popular song might've been either rock and roll damnation or, or problem child or a whole lot of Rosie. And those themselves aren't yeah. really even that like pop centric. Like you, if you said that to a, uh, non ACDC fan, they'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. So here's the, right. So here's the thing I think is when you're going back, you, you alluded to this earlier, all music is inherently subjective. We know that. And it's very contextual. And so the experience of buying a brand new record from a band, you know, maybe even your favorite band, but it's new and listening to it, you don't hear the hits because you get to choose the hits right. in that first listen. But nowadays. If I go back and listen to Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stone, I know what the hits are. They kind of stand out. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I think in this context, they really work. I got to listen to this, which is pure energy distilled and dispensed via fire hose upon the audience is what it sounds like to me. And choose which songs rock the most. Because, yeah, you're right. I'm not a huge ACDC and I hadn't gone deep into the back catalog. Well, I would say... All of these songs were unfamiliar to me when I first put this on. But man, if you're only going to listen to one song off this, we're just going to get right to it. Best song on the record, Whole Lot of Rose. It rocks so hard. And, you know, back to my original journey into the live record thing, I think to, to update that, I think what I was trying to think of was what rocks the hardest? It's a silly concept, I know, but just like, how do we get, how do we distill what rock music is, the energy? And that's why I went and listened to Song Remains the Same, which, sorry, I didn't it's, it's not very good. How, how the West was one is, is better, but, and get your yayas out by the Rolling Stones. I can't really say that that rocks. I love the Stones, but that's not rock. It's not the word that comes to mind Sure. when I hear stuff like that. So when I heard this, it felt like such a breath of fresh air. It's lean and mean. We all know that ACDC is known for being this very economical band in terms of how they write. It's simplistic, but extremely effective. Yeah. But I think one of the things that impressed me the most is you can hear, it feels like you're at the show. That's yeah. the last aspect we want to talk about of what's important about a live show. I feel transported. I feel, I, I want to chant along with the damn audience. And that yeah. is not, that's a rare thing. You nailed it, man. You nailed it. And it's funny, it, you bringing up so many like ideas or thoughts in my head that I was thinking when I was sort of prepping for this call. A, a lot of artists for decades, when they've recorded live albums, they've either taken out or they've lowered the volume of the crowd noise, mm -hmm. which to me 
know, I agree. Look, there's some editing and there's some work here. It's like, push this up. Oh, the bass didn't really sound as good. Let's put that. But I mean, the whole purpose of the live album is to have that crowd noise when a riff comes in, when the opening riff in, in Riff Raff comes in, just to hear that crowd roar and the jack when the crowd is just following along with Bond and they're, Bond is just letting the crowd go. If you take that away, then you're listening to a live album that sounds like a studio album. And so yeah. I never understood why, you know, and maybe there were instances out there where bands had little say and the studio was like, hey, we're going to do this. I, I don't know. But um, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Like, I think that one of the reasons why this album grabbed me, and I would be brutally honest if I think it didn't, but one of the main reasons this album grabbed me is because I could feel the energy right away. I felt yeah. like I was there. I still listen to a lot of music with these headphones that I'm listening to. I've got right now, they're Bose. And I'll lay down and close my eyes sometimes still and listen. And when I did that with this album, I literally felt like I was there. And this thing was recorded back in 1978. So I really think that's one of the, the key factors. And for yep. folks out there, bands out there that take that away or they, they lower EQ, whatever, they lower the crowd noise. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's not a real, it's, you're not getting the real experience. Well, the thing is, I agree. And you have to actually be able to whip the crowd into a frenzy. Mm -hmm. And some of that is in the, I think you'll find it's in the design of the songs. I right. think that what ACDC is really excellent. And, and sorry, maybe I should just levels. What I'm really saying here is that I was a very casual ACDC fan until I heard this record. And then I was like, oh, this just proved to me why they're actually an amazing band yeah. that absolutely must be paid closer attention to. And that this would have been an amazing thing to see live, clearly, right? Yeah. And why Bon Scott's a great frontman. So I think you can get some of that in the arrangements of the song. Take that very beginning. They do like a build. They're hitting big chords, building tension. They have a great ability to create tension and release in this music, which is a sped up blues or as one reviewer put it chuck berry played at nosebleed volume <laughs> i love it that's so true that's that's one part two as concert goers ourselves we both know sometimes the audience is just more primed and the audience i've been in audiences where i'm i think without the rest of you know with the, without the great oversized audience reaction i wouldn't have been into it like you get right. taken along on a ride with the audience who's just committed to it so they may I think you made a good choice here because it sounds like from the research I did, they were kind of at the height of their power yep. in terms of the, the live act. They felt like they were a really tight band and they wanted to capture that. And two, they recorded in Glasgow, which is effectively a homecoming for what? Three members of the band, the Young yep. Brothers and yep. Bon Scott were all Brother. born in Scotland, even though yep. they grew up in Australia. Yep. So I think they knew they had something they wanted to capture and, and they nailed it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Those are great points. I wanted to touch on a little bit of that in a little bit as well. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned a word that I wanted to pull out, which was power. And that's the first word that I can think of when I think of ACDC. It, 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 it's just, it's loud, it's fast. It's, you know, there's consistent drumming, not a huge number of difficult changes. I mean, you said it again earlier, Rob consistent thumping bass lines and screeching vocals. I mean, as, as fellow musicians, um, you know, I, I think the first song I ever learned how to play on drums was uh, Highway to Hell. And to this day, 
I, I can, I feel like I can play it in my sleep. I'm a bass player. I've never really been a drummer, but that was a song that I learned that I could fairly, I think I could play fairly well. You start getting into other bands and forget it. I, I'm not even a, a, a one on a scale of one to 10. But, um, but again, they have that energy and they have that, uh, what was the quote you used? Um, uh, uh, Chuck Berry, what was it? Chuck Berry played it in nosebleed volume. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that. So, but as I mentioned earlier, like I, I didn't really fully appreciate Bon Scott. So while you were listening to, by the way, those were all great bands. I, I, my, my, my mom was very much into Beatles, but there was never a Bob Dylan record or a Floyd record played in my house unless it was in my bedroom. Wow. There were many candles burning, things going on. Um, sure. Um, I, I didn't really fully appreciate Bon Scott, as I said earlier, but hearing this album for the first time, only a couple months ago, it, it certainly changed that. So Rob, you mentioned it too, quick history lesson for some of the people that don't know, just to catch them up. ACDC was originally formed by Mal uh, Malcolm and Angus Young um, back in 1973 in, in Sydney, Australia. They are, uh, Bon and the Young Brothers are originally from Scotland. Malcolm and Angus Young moved to Australia in 1963. Um, apparently, the story goes their parents grew tired of the really bad Scottish winters. And um, so they picked up and moved in 63. And then beginning in their early teens, Malcolm and Angus um, picked up musical instruments and learned how to play guitar. So fast forward to 1973, they formed ACDC, adding a bass player, a drummer, and a lead singer. Both the Young brothers decided they wanted to stick with the guitar. And the band's name originated from what their sister Margaret had helped them. She took it from letters that she saw on an electric adapter for a sewing machine, is what I understand. I don't know if you knew this story, Rob, but um, ACDC, as many might know, is an abbreviation for the term alternating current, direct current, ACDC, um, referring to electricity, of course. And the Young Brothers felt the name kind of suited their music. Which once again, and I was happy after I read this, power, like just p the word yeah. power, electrical power, everything, energetic. The band would go on to write and record six albums, Rob, before even releasing a live <laughs> recording of this show. And you mentioned it. They played in Glasgow. It was at the Apollo. Not not New York's Apollo, the Apollo in Glasgow. And the show took place on April 30th, 1978. And um, this was also really cool. They they titled the live album, If You Want Blood, You Got It, which according to a book that I found called ACDC Maximum Rock and Roll, Bon Scott was interviewed by a reporter during a concert, a festival on the green, I believe it was called, uh, in Oakland, California in July of 78. And the reporter asked Bon, what could the audience expect from the band's performance that day? And Bon just replied, blood. <laughs> well you know that's my other favorite thing is that they also have a song called if you want blood you got it but it's not on this record that's right hilarious to right me. exactly and they have um they have two albums called high voltage they released one in <laughs> just australia and then a few years later they released high voltage again but with the exception of the song high voltage all the other songs were different so mm -hmm. i'd never seen that before but now Contrary to that story that I just mentioned, I read a different story in Rolling Stone that the album title came from a show that the band performed, in, well, also in July of 78. There were about 
80,000 people present at this show and ACDC was still kind of up and coming. The, the bands on the bill that day were Aerosmith, Foreigner, Pat Travers, and Van Halen, who were, you know, I think 78. 78 was their first album, I think, Van Halen, if I remember correctly. Close to, yeah. So ACDC opened the show at 10.30 a.m. And most of the band hadn't even been to bed yet. So a reporter came up to Angus and Bond and asked what kind of show it was going to be. And Bond replied, quote, you remember when the Christians went to the Lions? Well, we're the Christians. And then the reporter then asked Angus the same question, to which he replied, hey, if they want blood, they're going to get it. Um, so... Uh, Listen, ACDC never passed over a good song title. That's for darn, <laughs> that's for darn sure. And I, I can joke about this, but I do think their song titles and a lot of their songs are great. But we call it title first songwriting. Like they said that and they went, oh yeah, that's a song. But we almost yeah, write around that, you know. And this, I think you can that from all their, that, like, oh, TNT. Oh yeah, that's a song. I can write that song. No problem. That's a great I'll bring it back. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess my approach always to songwriting was the name came dead last. Right, right. Start with a concept. Start with a concept. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, we could get into that another time. But uh, <laughs> ideas about that. Um, I, I was. This is really cool. This actually made me jump out of my chair a little bit. I was excited to learn, and I'm hoping this is true. I read that the album cover that it was a picture that was taken by the band's photographer during a show at a concert venue in Boston called the Paradise, and I grew up going to the Paradise, and I've seen over 20 concerts there. It's a small venue, probably about seven or 800 um, that, it, uh, that it fits. Um, but despite a few renovations, the Paradise Rock Club is essentially the same looking club as it was when it first opened in 1977. So I was super excited to learn that that, that picture was actually taken there. And the fact that I've been to that club so many times, and there were so many famous bands that when they got their start when they were touring around the country or when they were touring around the u.s bands like the police um a lot of these bands even fish a lot of these bands played the paradise before they really could draw more than 100 or 150 people to sure shows so i mean that was the way to sell records and get your name out there it was just a tour incessantly back in the day so they clearly learned and listen i think the story that this record tells ultimately yeah i mean i thank you for that that bit of history about the band that is all super interesting my understanding is that malcolm young is the older brother and he's kind of the brains behind the band yeah and meaning he, he wrote a lot of the riffs and he kind of helped organize the concepts of the band but he doesn't really get that much credit because angus his younger brother is the one wearing the schoolboy's uniform right. and running around that stage while soloing playing lead guitar and of course Bon Scott the lead singer so just hats off to Malcolm I think he recently died last couple of years yeah. but uh yeah. but yeah he was kind of the brain of the operation I was just gonna say that um they clearly not only you know they, they get pigeonholed for being savvy as a band right but this concert here on this record is an example of how you can take simple music and if you understand stage trap and you understand how to work an audience like that's what you're hearing you're hearing the distilled knowledge of touring of doing 300 shows 500 shows or whatever it was and understanding where the beats are where you can grab hold of them where you can get them clapping where you can get them chanting where you hold them in thrall 
and then where you let it release and pour over them. It's, it's a masterclass in that kind of thing, which is like a magic trick. It's a great point, man. I mean, you're making me think about so many things, but you're absolutely right. And that's, they really are a live band and, and they, they are masters at taking a really simple concept and making it incredible enough to where they are. I think ACDC could be, okay, let me back up. When I was in college, if I ever was, was manning the radio at a party, I knew quickly that if I put on the Grateful Dead, I was going to lose probably 90% of the room. Just four of my buddies would raise their hand. Like, yeah, dude. But, you know, there were a lot of women that we wanted to make sure didn't scoot out of these parties. So there'd be hip hop, there'd be rap, there'd be rock, there'd be a lot of 80s. I always felt like, when in doubt, just play an 80s song and everyone. Sure. Um, regardless of whether you grew up in that that decade or not. But, um you know, songs like You Shook Me All Night Long, yeah, it's, to me, personally, it's it's overplayed, but I mean, you play that at any party, similar to like Living on a Prayer, everyone's yes. going to get up. Every time I've been to a wedding and those songs have been played, or even Thunderstruck, everyone gets up. My kids are 13 and 11, and they know You Shook Me, they know Thunderstruck, and they know Living on a Prayer. And those songs came out, you know, 40 plus, well, yeah, yeah, 30, 40 years ago, so. Sure. It just because they're overplayed doesn't mean they're bad. And I, by the way, I, I agree. Living in prayer and should we all night long? They might, you know, not they might as well be the same song, but I totally categorize them in the same way yeah. in my head in terms of their ability to get people on the dance floor or singing or whatever. But they have been a bit overplayed. I don't care. I don't personally care to listen. To well, sure. That's all. Sure. Yeah. I always enjoy, I agree. I, I always enjoy though when the song does come on how many people get into it, whether I'm at a football game um, or a baseball game or whatever. And, you know, and I even see videos that you know, float around Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. Of, I saw one, the other day, this guy sitting on a park bench and it didn't say where, and I'm hoping this video wasn't planned, but the guy just started singing. And you had probably 150 people in the park who were just walking by who just started mm. singing on a prayer as well. So anyway, my point is it's like, that's the kind of a, a lot of ACDC's music. It it can get. I think it can get any. I I in the summertime I like to host gatherings. I like to host parties. Uh, nothing too crazy nowadays. Being in my mid forties, but like, and I I feel like music really brings people together. And I want to satisfy myself a little bit when it gets late at night. I want to play some of my stuff. But I also want to try to satisfy the crowd. And I feel like sure. ACDC is one of those bands that just everybody gets up for, regardless of what genre they like. So that's a really big point that I wanted to make um, just about this band in general. But getting back to the album, the album opens up with the track Riff Raff, which if you've heard it before, it includes the sound of an amplifier buzzing. And then you hear the crowd eagerly awaiting this this memorable live performance. And as the rhythm kicks in rob you know you're listening to acdc right
fast, bluesy. Uh, we've said all these things before. Kind of hints of metal, um, and then Bon Scott's vocals come in, and you're off to the races. And honestly, Rob, like I said, it was 20 or something like that seconds in, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, past the whole eh, TNT. This is Hall of Fame meets regardless of when he died and what his tenure was. I mean, the fact that he did six albums with the band was, sure. um, I think, qualifies, right? So, Yeah, I read too this week for the first time that he started out as a drummer. And he, I did not know he originally started with them as a drummer because they went through some personnel changes. You're right, it started with yeah. the brothers. I think there was even a third brother in the band for a minute. Yes. Yep. And they went through a few personnel changes, including the lead singer. But yeah, he came in and I think tried to drum with them. And I, I think I read that one of the last things he did before his, at one of those back and black sessions was he was he was playing the drums as they were trying to like arrange the tunes. I don't think he ended up on the track or anything, but Amazing. but it, it, it made me curious about this connection between learning drums and being a good front man, because I recently researched Iggy Pop and realized he was also a drummer and then decided he was tired of being in the back of the stage and learned me out <laughs> from it. You know, I. I wonder if there's a connection there of, of rhythm and controlling a crowd and some understanding of of percussive dynamics or something. Yeah, interesting. That's a good, interesting point. Listening to this album, you know, for people who are who haven't done it yet, when you go do it, don't make the mistake of listening to it on your smartphone speaker. Like any live album, this has got to be turned up either through headphones or on a stereo. Rob, remember yeah. those? Remember stereos? Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I still have my turntable. You still have yours? Cool. And is of course. It, is it, do you have a, a CD player as well? or I do not have a CD like? player. All oh, my CDs are gone. It's I Frankly, I listen to most of my music through streaming via headphones. If I had to pick one way to listen to music, it's headphones. I mean, anyone who doesn't have a good pair, we talk about it all the time on A Thousand One Album Complaints. You know, this is the best way. This is the way a lot of this stuff was meant to be listening. A lot of subtlety, right? Yeah. That said, I've been a vinyl collector for a very long time. I've, I've slowed down buying new records, let me awesome. say, but I have quite a few. Yeah. And I actually have this, I meant to go get it from the other room where it's sitting, I forgot for a nice. conversation. But yeah, this is, uh, yeah, there's something about the ritual of putting something on purposefully that's kind of exciting to me. I'm not, I'm a little bit of a minimalist. I've moved around a lot and, you know, so I don't have any more CDs is, is the result of that. But I do like the physical, a physical thing and nowadays when we make records we always make a point of printing them to vital because we've always loved vital so it's just real exciting to hear ourselves yeah. on a vinyl record yeah yeah that's awesome uh, well so getting back to this album the sound quality and i think that's what i was talking about earlier with like what what constitutes a great live album like you really have to i mean any every album you have to have good sound quality but you you really can't take anything away from i think hearing the crowd wars. Um, sure. I did some digging. The, the sound for this live album was engineered by a guy named you. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I looked it up a couple times. His name is U E, like the letter U and then the letter E, and then his last name is Nastasi. And although the rhythm section is first class, it's clear, in my opinion, the superpower in this band. You know, you mentioned Malcolm, but Angus Young. This sure. brought me. This brought me back to the, the the old feelings that I had about Angus. We all know him from seeing him, like you mentioned earlier, and anyone. And that's another thing. Another point I want to make, Rob. 
you don't have to be an ACDC fan. You see Angus in his schoolboy outfit and you're like, oh, that's the, you might not know his name, but you're like, that's the dude from ACDC. I'd be willing yeah. to bet millions of non-ACDC fans could identify him or at least sure. the band that he was playing just by seeing him, seeing a picture. Did you ever see them in concert? I never did, sadly. But let, let's talk about it from a guitar point. Yeah. You mentioned you're a bass player. I'm a guitar player. Yeah. I would say that Angus's style is real bluesy, but it's real hard and sharp yep. and has just a lot of feel to it. It is the kind of style, let's just be honest here, it's the kind of style that a guitar teacher is going to say doesn't have a ton of technique backing it up. Agreed. However, I mean, he's not a shredder in any 80s sense of the word. He's not seen by. He's played hard and fast constantly. Like every note we play, feel like it's played with energy. Totally. And then I want to call out the tone of the guitar, which I think is excellent. I, I think you were alluding to this that's with the, the headphone listen. You nailed it. You, that's the key. Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's got that like strangle distortion, pinch, pinch harmonic kind of vibe to it, where it feels like every note is being kind of squeezed out through the end. 100%. And so, yeah, just really cool. Yeah, it's like he bends every note too. So if he means to play a C, he's he's playing a B sharp, but he's bending it to a C. Sure. Yeah. And so it's just, and he does it perfectly. I, I never really heard him make any mistakes. And I did own back in the 80s and early 90s, I used to go to this tape shop in Boston where they had legs. And they were completely illegal, but this place never really got shut down, but you could go down and buy ACDC in Sweden. Or I remember I bought Motley Crue in Milan, Italy. Uh, nice. And just, you know, listen to, but I just feel like Angus never, he never had a bad note. And that's something I, I always knew, like, in my opinion, and I don't want to take anything away from any of the other guys, but I just, I felt like without Angus, I don't know where I would be as a, as a fan. Yeah. Um, I think, listen, being in a band, especially one like this, but any band, but knowing your role, it's about clear delineation of responsibilities. Yeah. So to me, what the rest of the band is doing, which it's an overlook, I'm not going to tell you why you should care, is it's the power of not overplaying. Yeah. It's the power of believing that the simple thing you wrote or practiced, band, offstage, even if it's just three chords repeating endlessly or one bass note or whatever it is, thrumming away as eighth notes, Believing in yourself that, hey, in fact, that is cool and I should be patient and I should not let the nervousness of being on make me try to do something more than that or something new. It's like part of your road is already cool. Just trust that. Just let it be. Provide the backbeat that you're intended to be there to provide for those other two guys, the, the lead singer and the lead guitar player. I've saved every concert ticket of every concert I've ever gone to. And so we're going back to 1989, which is my first concert. It was actually... Um, anthrax was my very Whoa. first concert and my nice. fa my father took me and he, so my dad is a lawyer at the time he had a he had a collared golf shirt like an alligator lacoste golf shirt yeah and he takes his son and his two sons two friends <laughs> wearing black anthrax shirts <laughs> jeans ripped at the knees and combat boots don't ask me why but i just did it was part of the uniform and so from that day it was 1989. I, I don't know why I'm blanking the month. It was either August or September. I've saved all my stubs. And so I went back wow. and looked. Um, and I, I, I know that I had seen ACDC, but they were a bucket list concert meet for me for 
a long time. And I had missed too many shows throughout the, the 80s and 90s when they came through Boston. But I finally jumped at the opportunity, Rob, in 2015. And I saw him in August of that year at Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. And, yeah. and I just I didn't have any connections. I just went online to Ticketmaster and randomly landed 10th row. Complete wow. luck. And nice. one of the best concerts that I've ever seen, and I'm not just saying this to fit in with this, this podcast episode, you know, I, I just, so I had a lot of fun because I went back, looked at some video from that night on YouTube and I was looking at the set list and it, apparently there were a lot of songs from If You Want Blood that were in the set list that night and I mm. never even knew. So I went back and watched some of the videos of that. I listened to some audio um, and it was clear to me that night, at least to me, that although I had always admired Angus Young, like I was saying, his solo was just, it was one of, it was amongst one of the best I've, I've ever seen. And I've, I feel like I've seen some pretty damn good guitar players. So yeah, I, I, got, I didn't mean to take anything away from him either. He's got a lot of style for yeah. sure. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to call it like it is, but I think the thing we've been saying it, but it's like, if you're going to have some bands can hide behind the complexity of their material. Totally. And frankly, the material is complex enough. You have to pay really close attention to what you're playing and or singing at all times. Mm -hmm. I got a count of measures, measure of five, you know, in lyric, right? ACDC is unmoored from that, thankfully, because they're basically man with only, they're making a painting with only primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Yeah. And so you only have so many options. The good news is you can throw all that extra energy into the dynamics of the stage, into controlling the audience, into that tension release. But yeah, I have no doubt there can develop an excellent uh, way of doing that. No, and I love your approach too. I, I think I think the first podcast episode I listened to of your guys was Led Zeppelin 2. And I just love the dynamic. I mean, for everyone, anyone listening to this, you, you got to go back and check out Rob's podcast because it's, it really is more of an honest look and it's not just an ass kissing of, you know, band X or band Y. And like you said, you tell it like it is. So I do appreciate your honesty and yeah, well, it's, it's the way it's got to be for sure. Well, it's, I mean, it's just more fun. It's just an opinion. You know, we, yeah, totally. like, like we said at the top, music is inherently subjective. Any any record we're going to talk about that's that's sold a certain number of copies, it's somebody's favorite record. And not only that, but the artists probably poured a lot of energy and attention into it. And I have all respect to that. I, I really do. That said, when you're doing the podcast like we're doing, a thousand album complaints every week, you know, you're coming in fresh sometimes. You got a week to listen to it. You got a week to catch up. You're not a super fan. Right. So, and then those kind of things where, I, yeah, of course, we're just going to like stake, a, stake an opinion and, and stick by it one way or the other. And sometimes they get contentious, I should point out. But there's other times where I just think you love it that much more if you're able to poke fun at it. I don't believe in blind allegiance to anybody. The Beatles had some whiffs too. Totally. I think we know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you made a great point that they really were never a live band. And if you listen to some of their live concerts, they leave a lot to be desired, right? So, um, oh, well, the sound sucks. Well, you know, you know what the thing that turned me around a little bit on that was that documentary that Ron Howard made some years back called Eight Days a Week. Yeah. Which was yeah. sort of about their early road dog days. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would have loved to have seen him in those days, but by the time they're playing Shake Stadium, it's definitely different on a number of levels. How hilarious was it that they were playing those concerts through the PA system at those? <laughs> complete, ins- complete insanity. And, you know, we actually were talking a little bit about the technology behind live, big live shows when we were talking about the Grateful Dead recently on the podcast. We did American Beauty because you mentioned the Grateful Dead and the whole light array. You know, how can you play a field and expect everyone, 50,000 people spread throughout this field to get the same sound at the same time and not have things cross pollinate it's it's a technical challenge for sure that we we definitely get a lot better at uh, in the decades since the deal as if you want blood progresses there are tracks like uh hell ain't a bad place to be the the muscle just continues progression of this song I was talking about it earlier and a lot of the other ACDC songs seem you know, relatively simple to play I don't want to take too much away but again I can remember my high school band we learned a lot of ACDC songs and as a bass player I was just like okay so I just need to kind of go bum, 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 bum. <laughs> okay now move to a bum, 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 bum. but then again it, it it left little to I think Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, they still found a way with that simplicity, and we've gone over it now numerous times to really capture the essence that is just crazy loud metal blues. That's the term I'm going to use. So. Yeah, like metal blues. I, yeah, I, I think there are, there are a bunch of great, and not so mentioned a whole lot of Rosie. Yep. Uh, let, let me mention one more thing about the the simplicity of the songs. I think it's objectively. These songs are technically simple, but that does not mean that crafting them is a simple enterprise. It does right. not mean that arranging them for the stage to have this much power was a simple enterprise, right? That, so that's the distinction that I'm drawing here. You can you can look at the chord chart and say, well, there's three chords, power chords. That's simple. Yes, but you're missing something, right? One of the things they do really well is they leave a lot of space in the arrangements 
starting from the ground up, starting from the riffs they write. Take the whole lot of Rosie riff, which I think is the standout track on the record. had a lot of space in between for Bon Scott to kind of get in there, or frankly, just for the, the hi-hat to be kicking. And that itself builds tension. And then they do this thing a lot in a lot of the arrangements where they start really spacious. You know, there's no snare drum. Maybe there's no drums at all. Maybe there's no bass. Maybe the guitar is just doing little punches instead of a true rhythm track. And then they break it together. And now when the whole band kicks in, man, you can't help but be into it. Yeah. So it's that... It's that dichotomy of, of leaking things and then bringing it back together and kind of going, you know, the Pixies get credit for this quiet, loud, quiet, loudest. Well, this is this is sort of like sparse and whatever the opposite, sparse and full, you know, back and forth in the ACDC yeah. uh, catalog. I, I, I don't know if we're going to get to every song, but I do want to call it one other song. It's a particular favorite of mine. Yeah, I've got a couple here, but I wanted to. Okay. I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously, either. But like uh, tracks such as Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, I just think that song, it just has a lot of muscle to it. I mean, the, the whole album, it's just it's just muscle. It's just power. As a, um, you know, like I said, uh, did I already talk about Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be? I think I did. No, the other song I wanted to talk about was uh, Bad Boy Boogie and Problem Child.
And those are also kind of upbeat, up-tempo, faster. You know, Angus Young's guitar just kind of gleams over the rhythm section. It left me dumbfounded. And it's really no wonder why these guys shot to the top early in their careers. I mean, they played that that concert in the U.S. in 78 with Van Halen and Aerosmith, who were, Aerosmith was really at the top of their game at the time and probably the biggest U.S. rock and roll band. But it was this guy who was leading the charge, not to take away from the rest of the band again, like I said, especially Bon Scott, but the the dual guitars coming from the Young Brothers, I think just with each song, you know, and Bad Boy Boogie and Problem Child are two that I wanted to call out. I think they're just supercharged. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I do, I don't think there's any skippable clones on there because it's a, it's just a fun album front to back. It's tight. All the, all the songs are pretty quick. They get in, they get out, they leave you on more. The whole record kind of feels that way. And in case we haven't said this explicitly, what I'm really saying is if you're wondering why ACDC are such a phenomenon and you kind of can't understand it yet, this record helped me understand that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. It, it tells you like why people are in love with them. The other song I want to mention, and I have this soft spot for when guys, especially lead singers are just rocking so hard. I just feel like their head is going to explode. <laughs> like the song Jukebox Zero, which I unabashedly love, but also makes me laugh every time how high the vocal goes. So the song that just seems so, so over the top rock and roll with a capital R is Let There Be Rock. I had never heard that song before this. I guess that was one of their singles from their previous albums. To me, it's just such a funny concept for a song. You found like a preacher on a pulpit. In fact, I think there is a promotional video that they made at the time of the Sikta version where, where he preachers outfit. But the funniest thing to me about the song is you listen to it, you know what I'm talking about. They, they do this thing I call it rocking yourself into a corner. 
They rock so hard, they have nowhere else to go. Gonna <laughs> stop and restart this. <laughs> That's a great point. Yes, I do remember hearing that. And I just, um, you made a good point earlier about just the fact that there really were no skips on this. And um, just recently got back from a vacation up north. And although I was listening to a lot of relaxing, kind of laid back music, I, I was blaring this in my headphones sitting out in a, a kayak uh, mm. on this lake up in Maine and nice. just gave me so much energy and I, I do I do know what you're talking about and yeah you're right they just they ended up just having to start it over again and that was something that I didn't really think about until you mentioned <laughs> it's just a, it's just an internal joke with myself about rocking yourself into a quarter yeah because they're like they're picking up the tempo and they're kind of picking up the it's going up, it's changing key or it's changing chord, like upward. And they just hit a, kind of hit a wall or there's no really a way the way it break <laughs> except to just call it a day and restart the song. Anyway, I, I love it. That one just that, the audacity of that song just always makes me laugh. For whatever uh, you mentioned, whole lot of Rosie as well. Whole lot of Rosie was the only song from this. Was it the Jack and and whole lot of Rosie? I think were the only ones that I had heard previously. And for me, whole lot of Rosie take a Muddy Waters song or a BB King classic, and like we were saying earlier with Chuck Berry. To speed it up significantly, and I think you get a whole lot of Rosie, right? I think this sure. this track was written by Bon Scott, and it was uh, many people may know this. It was inspired by a one night stand that he had with a an extremely experienced plus size woman. Uh, let's yeah. just say, sure. Um, I think he mentioned Sir Wade's Clint nineteenth. Yeah, I, he's he's very very specific in this song, which I think is hilarious, and there's also <laughs> a lot of comedy. And, you know, going back to Big Balls, um, which is not on this album, but from their, I believe their very first album, High Voltage, that is just, it's comedic. There's just a lot of, there's just a lot of lyrics. I mean, think about Thunderstruck and, and think about just so many other tracks that they have where they're literally talking about sex and getting it in. And but they disguise it in a way where it was acceptable to play on regular radio. And as a eight, nine or ten year old, I was listening to it, singing them at the top of my lungs, having absolutely <laughs> no idea what they were talking about. So uh, well, it was it was always funny to see my parents face faces when they would hear me sing a certain lyric and be like, you know, uh, squeeze that lemon until the juice runs down my leg, Led Zeppelin. And they were like, do you know what that means? <laughs> um, a lot of that going on with ACDC too. Indeed. And I think the reason I like Whole Lot of Rosie the best is, well, for one, for the reason you mentioned, which it got some humor to it. I think it's got a great title. Like it stands out amongst their titles as being a little more thoughtful, not the right word, but just a little different. Yeah. But specifically it's the drop-in. Yeah, to the song a lot of this a lot of songs on this record have great drop in they purposely make the arrangement in such a way that like i said they, they build it up they build some tension they have some hits they make you 
want something to happen and then bam, the band drops in and you are in it. If you're not headbanging when this song kicks, totally, you might not like rock and roll. Totally. Yeah, that's a great point. We've touched upon this a bunch of times, you know, it's somewhat similar formula, but it's the way that they execute, Rob, which you made a great point. I think you kind of put the cherry on top and it had the, you know, if I was going to do an elevator pitch to anyone on, um, you know, for any, anybody who doesn't know what the elevator pitch is, you know, you're in an elevator with someone and you have literally like 10 seconds to pitch them, whatever you're trying to sell. Yeah. Um, and I always ask people that, like, what's your elevator pitch on this album? What's your elevator pitch on that album? And I think that's, I think you nailed it. So that's what I'm going to steal whenever I'm talking to anyone about ACDC again. But I like a lot of prog rock as well. And I, it, it's funny, sure. I have a group of friends who, uh, that I surround myself here in my neighborhood regularly who really don't like prog rock. Uh, and so whenever we're together and we're, we're flipping, switching music, uh, whenever a prog rock band, a, a yes, a, a rush, a King Crimson comes on the, the eyes roll and they're like, all right, but after this, we're going to change it. Um, <laughs> I love prog rock, but I also, obviously I love the formula. I think it's, you know, we, again, we talked about it. It's very similar formula, but the execution is what really makes ACDC unique um and uh, you know i i think that that this is i'll say it over and over and over again this is really a band that i think anyone with any kind of musical taste can get into if you're at a party or a gathering you may agree or disagree with this rob but i feel like reggae has that too not in no way am yeah. i relating reggae to acdc but it's like if I have a crowd of people who I know are going to get particular about what music they want to listen to during a party, I'll put on some reggae or I'll put on. And so it's just party music that I think is intellectual as well as kind of gritty and, and heavy, but also funny. And um, the intellectual part of it is really just the way that they execute the instruments, which I think is the coolest. And there's consistency throughout. It's, it's pretty it's free consistent. So nothing's going to disrupt you. And that, that goes back to what I said about not having big hit songs. Yep. That sometimes it, when you yep. want things to be background music, a big hit kind of catches your ear in a in a not so great way, and you go, you know, and you're comparing it to the original, especially if it's a live record, things like that. Yeah, I also think it's important to mention tracks like uh, "Rock and Roll Damnation" and "High Voltage." Oh!
High sure. Voltage was, uh, we talked about this earlier, High Voltage was the title of the band's first album. And I looked into this. It was the first album, High Voltage, was only released in Australia. It was in 1975. And the song High Voltage was not on the original debut release. It was the eighth track on their second album, TNT. And then it would be included again later on the release of an, their international album in 1976, which was also titled High Voltage. So Yeah, yeah. I think they like took they took the first two Australian releases and they kind of took the best of those tracks to make the first international release, right? I think yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. They're just trying to drum up some some interest there and, and grow outside of Australia, which they certainly did really, really quickly. So Well look, speaking of that first record, I will say, I mean if there were just more more tape from this tour, I would definitely happily listen to more of it. If this was the Great Old Head and they just been taping all along the way and all that was available to me. I would say one bummer for me is that that song I mentioned before, Long Way to the Top, Do You Want to Rock and Roll, is not on here. I would have loved a live, high-energy version of that. So I just think that's a really fun song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going back to the song High Voltage again, it's just a, another great representation of the band's energy. I think the version on this live album is it's the best that I've ever heard, especially again with Angus's solo. And, and and the song pretty much closes with Angus's solo, which I can remember when I saw them in Massachusetts in 2015. Angus did a, it was like a 20 minute solo and just blew my mind And being 10th row. Uh, I find myself as a musician as well, always kind of critiquing or you know not that i could ever hold a candle to angus young but, you know just like yeah, he made a mistake there he made a mistake there. it annoys a lot of people that i uh, converse with on a regular basis but sure we as musicians sometimes do that but my jaw dropped and i was like wow i have got to put i've got to put angus up there and this was another great high voltage this was just a great solo personally i think it's just what really carries this this album i found this out too rob that footage the completed footage like video footage of if you want blood the concert it actually had never been released ultimately some of it was um, released songs like riff raff and bad boy boogie were used in an acdc dvd yeah. and, and those came out in like the 2000s but i wonder if like this footage is just sitting somewhere in a warehouse in yeah. australia or in la plus Wait, plucked, right? I know. It looked like the Beatles back. I was sitting that, around for years and years. That was an amazing documentary. I remember when that came out, what was it, two years ago or last year? Last year, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And I spent the entire weekend just watching that. and it Just, just watching your favorite band practice. Yeah. Me too. So... After listening to If You Want Blood, you got it several times. I think I listened to it nine or ten times before when Rob first mentioned, between when Rob first, you first mentioned to me to, to today. I get it, man. I get why it's considered one of the best live albums. And it, it really is the, the power and the energy that comes across in the instruments. And you nailed it again. I think you've been key at really driving some of the points that I've been trying to make home which I thank you for, um, was just the execution of how they did it. And that, but the, the frenzied atmosphere 
that's the Glasgow crowd. It was really absolutely captured and added to the it's this album's fire. So, no, good point. Props, props to the crowd. Absolutely, they're they're super into it. And you know, even though it does make those lists, I do feel like it's underrated. Like not as many people know about it. So I'm not blown away that you had heard it before. That's one of the reasons I wanted wanted to do it. I think work people need to listen to this. I love it. So <laughs> now going back to some some other stats, I looked this up. Classic Rock Magazine, which I don't know if that exists anymore. They had a, an issue years back, 50 Greatest Live Albums Ever. They listed that at number two. I'm realizing right now that I never pulled what was actually listed as number one. So I apologize there. I read a great quote. And it was online, but there was a magazine that's no longer in publication called Blender. And there was a writer from Blender magazine quoted as saying, quote, ACDC were always a mighty live act. And this is the sound of ACDC in Europe just prior to 1979's U.S. breakthrough. The audience's hysteria regularly cuts through the amps as they howl along to singer Bon Scott's tale of sexually transmitted disease, a.k.a. the Jack, and then punctuates guitarist Angus Young's staccato riffing on Whole Lotta Rosie. Imagine a punk rock Chuck Berry played at nosebleed volume. There it is, man. There it is, yeah. So, Rob, what other songs? You know, these were the ones that really stuck out to me, but what were some yeah, of the songs, if any, if any, that stuck out to you? We, we hit the big ones for me. For me, it's a whole lot of Rosie, Let There Be Rock. They they think about the most, like, that the whole thing is a lot of fun. And I think it is a masterclass in the dynamics of simple songs. Not just, might be an easy song to write, but how to arrange it for maximum power. That's a, that's a whole separate issue. And this is a masterclass in how to do that. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's pretty much it, man. I, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to add. I guess in, in closing, I, I wanted to thank you again for suggesting this album and really introducing me to it. And I encourage all the music fans out there, and not only rock fans, but music fans, listen to this album. And I think Rob brings a, a great point that I think any music fan can appreciate what ACDC was trying to do and what they were capable of doing, regardless of whether you like that heavy, fast fast pace um i won't call it metal but you know um i keep forgetting it uh, it kind of sounds it sounds a little more like metal than you know led zeppelin are often thought of as the godfathers of metal but Indeed. i think in terms of what metal became in the 80s this is closer it definitely started the there are a lot of you know yes i agree with you i think that they have a lot more of a blues taste to them which is personally my more my preference now mm -hmm. i do like iron maiden i do like judas priest iron maiden probably more so than judas priest and i just especially iron maiden i just admire their instrumental talent I, you could argue they're kind of a prog rock metal band but sure. um but the bluesiness just getting everybody up and getting everybody dancing that's something that you know, not all bands can necessarily do. And so I'd have to say that ACDC is a band that can get anybody to start tapping their foot or bounce, moving their knee or just moving around. And I don't think a lot of bands can can do that. There's there's your really diehard fans of XYZ band, and I'm sure those exist for ACDC, of course, but this is a band and this is an album that I think any music music fan, regardless of what genre you're into, can 
Absolutely. You know what it brings to mind a little bit? The man we didn't mention is 70s or ZZ Top. Yes. I think Angus has a Great. little similar to Billy Gibbons, you know, that kind of squelched tone, bluesy style. And another band that kind of changed lanes to a certain extent in the 80s. Yep. Yep. But the 70s era ZZ Top, the Trace Albrays era, the LaGrange, et cetera. It's, it's so good. It's pretty darn easy to like. And it's. Yeah. Obviously, they're a different band, but there's something similar about it in my mind. Yeah. What did we miss, Matt? I think you said we covered everything that you were thinking of. Anything else that I might have missed? We've gone through all all my notes and thoughts on it. Um, it's a great record, and it's fun. Above all, you know, sometimes these records can be a little bit of a slog. Totally. Listen, like a lot of great art. I've read I read War and Peace because it's what <laughs> one does. I can't say I enjoy reading it, but I'm... You know, <laughs> This is not like that. This is fun all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, I can't thank you enough. Um, I, I think you're an exceptional podcaster and I really mean that I've talked to, I mean, you've, you've really helped me step up my game. It feels to me like this is pretty effortless to you. So, um, I'm really glad that, that we connected. When I read your bio, I was like, this guy and I are going to have a lot to connect about. And then when I totally. listened to your podcast before we got together, I was like, oh my God. And it, it kept me interested and wanting to listen more because there are a lot of podcasts out there. And, sure. so, you know, my elevator pitch would be, you know, why, why listen to Rob's it's, if you're a music fan, they're not only going to turn you on to stuff that you maybe never heard or thought about before, but they're going to really make you look at an album differently than you ever did. Thank you so much. Thank you for all those lovely compliments. It's been awesome talking to you as well. Same, same, you know, and I think, I like to think that what we're doing, making these music podcasts is, is not only sharing our own opinions, but kind of helping people speak and think more intelligently about the stuff they do and don't like. It's one thing to say, I like it and not, you know, or I don't like it and then not have anything else to say, but if you can articulate wise, back up your opinion. You know, that's, that's always what I strive for kind of on all aspects of my life. And, uh, Certainly spent a lot of time talking and thinking about records, as have you. So that makes it easy, I suppose. But uh, but yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Thanks so much for having me. And, and I, lastly, too, you mentioned something I forgot to comment on earlier, is how you, you want to encourage people to engage, even if it's negative energy, right? And I have the same mission statement that I wrote on my website, which is like, I want you to either agree disagree right so sure. send me messages saying greg great review on xyz album i really love that or greg i totally disagree i think that album sucks and here's why that's what i love about it and that's what i love that you guys were going after as well with your podcast absolutely absolutely we love it when people write in and tell us we're wrong like i said <laughs> you only have so much time to there. research a band and you're of course not going to get it all right and yeah. i think we're both doing this for the same reason which is to learn I think that you learn more about music, you enrich yourself, and it makes it more enjoyable, right? And I, that's what I find time and time again, even going back to some of these records that I thought I knew. Well, now you dive in, you research them, you hear the backstory, you hear about where the artist was at in their career and how the record was made, and you give it this really hard listen. And now it opens up this whole new world, even on stuff you might have thought you knew. So that's uh, that's the gist of it, and it's just, it's just fun to learn. and. Yeah, that includes being corrected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks again. Let's absolutely 100% do it again. All right. Great, great. Appreciate it, man. You too. Later. Later. Bye.
Thanks again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Rob Cassis, for coming along for the ride. You can check out Rob's podcast, 1001 Album Complaints, anywhere podcasts are played. Also, if you're interested in this album or any of the other albums or books that I've discussed on this episode or previous episodes, go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. Duh. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Guys, please follow the show on your preferred platforms so you can get regular updates on new episodes. And also, big ask, if you guys would be so kind as to just quickly go in and pop a review or rate the podcast. For those of you who do this, you know this helps move the needle and get the word out there. I do want to hear from you also. Please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you might have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. If you'd like to get regular updates on reviews, interviews, product and music news, go to the homepage and join the mailing list. Also visit our YouTube page and stay tuned for updates on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. You can find me at Album Review Net with Greg Potters. Thank you guys. Now go get your shine boxes. trip down by the highway take a trip down by the highway take a trip down by the highway take a trip down by the